Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who would have been one of the good billionaires. And if you don't believe me, just give me a billion dollars so we can find out. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play a live interview I recently conducted in New York with Anand Giridadas, who's been on this show before. He's the author of the book Winners Take All and has been one of the sharpest critics of how supposedly philanthropic tech billionaires are trying to change the world. This interview was recorded live at the Made by We space in New York City, which is an event space in the Flatiron District owned by WeWork. So let's go there to hear my interview with Anand Giridadas. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming to this place. This is lovely, actually. I'm sort of amazed by it. And I want to introduce Anand Girdardas. Is that right? You did a fantastic job. Thank you very job. much. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things substantively. Have a seat, Anand. You can relax. Um, I can never of, quite relax around you. That's you know? fair. You've destroyed but, so many tech barons. Yes, legends. that's true. But you're not one of them. Um, so... <laughs> We share something in common about what we want to do to them. I am so glad to be here in New York. We're taking a lot of Recode Decodes on the road because we really think one of the things that we made a bet on when we started the Recode Decode podcast was that people like substance in this twitchy, horrible time and want to talk substantively with great people about important issues. And so we've been doing tons and tons of live podcasts all over the country, and we're going to be doing more um, as we move forward because we think it's super important to, uh, to address some issues, both with the players and other people who are critics of the players. And so I'm very excited to talk to Anand, um, because we did a podcast, how long ago? About six, seven months ago? Six months, about this topic that has suddenly gotten very big, um, is what to do about tech, what to do about big tech, what to do about really rich people ruining the world, essentially. All right, Anand, so thank you for coming. So talk a little bit about your book and why you started it for people who weren't, aren't familiar with Winner Takes All. I think I observed something that probably many of you have observed one way or another, which is that we live in this time in which, on one hand, very rich people are extraordinarily generous and socially concerned. Mm -hmm. And it's not only lip service, right? It's not only all the hippie imagery that we see in a WeWork. Um, it is more money being given away than's ever been given away in the history of the world. That's real, mm -hmm. right? It's a lot of the tech companies that you've spent so long writing about that genuinely have kind of civilizational missions and have done genuine good for the world while also doing other stuff. Um, it is uh, product. You can't go shopping without finding socks that are going to change the world, tote bags that are going to change the world, mm -hmm. kick in two bucks at Walgreens, Bono is involved in all of it. Um, <laughs> impact, in, I mean, the hardest-hearted business people on earth now feel a need. Mm -hmm to not just do investing, but impact investing, right? right? And they want to empower humanity, unless you're Bill McGlashan, you're doing impact investing, but you don't want people who you're empowering to compete with your son for that seat that you bribed. We'll get to him. For him. Um, 
So that's all true, an age of extraordinary elite generosity. But there's the other half of the story, which this is also an age of extraordinary elite hoarding. People use the word inequality. I think it makes people's eyes glaze over. Inequality is just a gap. There's all kinds of gaps. Everywhere has a gap. I think what has happened in America is more specific. The rainwater of the future has been abundant in the last 30, 40 years. If you look at Spain, a country like that's a different situation. Mm -hmm. I don't think Spain has been rained on by a lot of future mm -hmm. in the last 30, 40 years. Right. As you know better than anybody in this room, we've had a lot of future in this country. Yes, we do. Right? Innovation's a Latin word for new shit. We've had a lot of new shit right. in this country in the last 30, 40 <laughs> years. It's just that the very few have, for, have, have kind of monopolized the gains. That's true of tech. It's also true, by the way, of this thing in the news this week, Chinese trade. America as a whole has benefited from trading with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Investors have benefited, companies have benefited, consumers have benefited. It was just that we totally failed to redistribute the gains right. from the country trading with China. And that has been the case everywhere. So I tried to start the book with the question, what is the relationship between the extraordinary elite generosity of our time, which is real, and the extraordinary elite hoarding of our time, the monopolization of the future itself. And I think the conventional theory out there is that the relationship is one of a drop in the bucket. That, yes, we do have these big problems, but these people are trying. Zuck is trying, the Google people are trying, the Wall Street people are trying, the Goldman Sachs people doing social impact bonds are trying. If only there were more of them and they had more billions and they tried harder and we, they crunched their spreadsheets in new ways, they could solve these problems. And I started to become curious about an opposite possibility, which is that maybe the extraordinary elite generosity of our time is how we maintain the extraordinary elite hoarding of our time. Maybe the generosity is the wingman of the injustice and the making a difference is the wingman of making a killing. And the giving back is a wingman of taking ruthlessly. And I reported it out. Because like you, I'm a reporter, I so went into me, these worlds, and I found it to be, unfortunately, true. True, that this is, to, this is linked together, that this is just, a, you'd rather them just keep their dirty money, essentially. This, this is a very good question. So the, lot, the easiest and the most immediate pushback I can get is like, what, do you prefer they just bought a yacht? So it's a complicated question, right? And I think most people's intuition is, well, that would never be better. At least they're doing something even if you're sympathetic to my view. So let's take, so I think in some cases, of course we'd be better off with them at least trying to do something than buying a yacht, in some cases. I think there are other cases where that's actually not true. So let's take three, one, very quickly. The Sacklers. Mm -hmm. okay? No. So no one likes the Sacklers because honestly, like 400,000 people killed in your country is sort of genocide numbers, so okay. it's, it's, it's not, right. they're not an attractive For those family. not keeping up opiates, go ahead. So the Sacklers made billions and billions of dollars, members of that family, um, by selling OxyContin, and now, as accused by several states, including this state of New York, knowingly pushing something they knew had problems, they knew was more addictive, deceiving people, etc. So you make billions, and then they spent millions philanthropically, art museums everywhere, right? Yep. They don't donate to art museums in the communities they're hurting. They donate to art museums in places where people like you and me live. Mm -hmm. So we know not to, we, know, we think they're, they're good people. All the big cities, places where the journalists live, the regulators live. And they did this for a long time. So now you say, okay, would we have been better off if the Sacklers had just bought yachts? I would argue yes. Mm -hmm. Because what would have happened if they'd bought yachts? They would have been 
doing this stuff with their business, people would have been dying, and they would have had no reputational cover. Regulators would not have thought of them as the art family. Journalists wouldn't thought of them as an art fam. When I was growing up in Washington, D.C., this thing was going on. I didn't know about that. I just knew about the Sackler Gallery. And I believe it is plausible that regulators and journalists would have come for them way earlier if they had not had the moral glow purchased through philanthropy. Mark Zuckerberg, same story. If he didn't have the change the world vibe, if we saw him the way we see anybody buying stuff for a dollar and selling for two in this country. I'm not saying as an evil person, I'm just not saying as a, as a sage. If we saw him the way you see someone at the chemical company, right? If that had been our image of him right. for the last 20 years, you think he would have gotten away with this shit? Well, we'll get to him in a second, but, but what, so, so, actually, let's get she to him says, right now. Yeah. Let's get to him right now. Do you, it's never too early He has tonight. not been as, n- most of the tech people have not been as philanthropic. Gates was the first one who really started and shifted his image really drastically from sort of, you Monopolist. know. Well, Darth Vader, I was thinking, um, to a more, to, to uh, it's interesting because he was the apex predator. He was the one that you couldn't do, you couldn't make a move in tech. And everyone had that image of him from the very beginning. Um, not as a sweet, you know, uh, sweatshirt wearing young man, as sort of a nasty nerd, really, who decided to kill you, he would do it. And you couldn't start a business without him doing it. And he, that was his reputation from the get-go, not from, besides being the world's richest man. And aside from the odd little, like, he takes coach or whatever, those kind of stories, which are entirely untrue, um, he was not seen he that He takes way. a coach on he his takes private a coach, jets. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the back. <laughs> yeah, it would be funny if he had a coach. Um, like with horses and everything. A personality coach. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, no, he doesn't have that. So, sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make I'm wondering when he's going to revoke the blurb on my book. Really? Okay. He already <laughs> called me a communist when he was at Davos. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, which you clearly are. Um, so, <laughs> when you, so he started this off, this philanthropy, but most of tech hadn't been that philanthropic in the way the Sacklers had been and some others. Um, but go through Mark. So Mark... You, but Mark reason- made that big announcement in that letter to his daughter that, yes. that they were going to give away 99% of yes. the shares, yes. right? Yes. Which, right. Was a, which is, I think, maybe the biggest statement in the tech world where, where someone had, you know, right. after Gates, this younger group had done it, except they were going to do it through an LLC, which is, you know, slightly weird modality. But they're definitely, they're definitely doing stuff. And I, I meet public school teachers all the time whose lives are being upended by Mark's ideas about public schools. Because part of what I'm really writing about is a culture, not just a set of practices. A culture in which we think people who have made a lot of money should have thoughts about everything and that those thoughts should be the law. So Mark Zuckerberg, as far as I understand it, wanted to like find you know, build a social network to help people at Harvard meet each other. Mm -hmm. He ended up being the most dangerous person in the world. And now, incidentally, as a byproduct of that, gets to have thoughts about how public schools are in America. Mm -hmm. You know, they have tech companies in Germany. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody in the German education ministry is curious about the thoughts of German social networking CEOs Mm -hmm. about education. They're allowed to exist. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I think Mark Zuckerberg should legally be allowed to have thoughts about ed- education. I just don't think they should have any more weight than he is able to express through voting every two or four years. Right. So 
nonetheless, he comes with him quite a lot of cash. And I think a lot of, go through New, what happened here in Newark. It was a huge announcement. It was on Oprah. It was on every, it was everywhere about that he was giving this money. Cory Booker was right in there with him, um, who's running for president. He, I'm going to give this much money to fix schools in Newark. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's Newark donation was in some ways modeled after another great philanthropist, Christopher Columbus, um, who also decided to change a place without having been there before um, and didn't seem to know much about, kind of saw it as a blank slate, right? which was more it's his own blankness yeah. projected onto right. what he found. And so Mark Zuckerberg, having never been to Newark, mm -hmm goes on Oprah, makes this announcement, we're going to transform Newark. And, and $100 million, right? And by all accounts, it literally did nothing. The money disappeared. I mean, it just, it did nothing. And what is so remarkable about that is how obvious it is. This is the whole reason that we transitioned over hundreds of years out of feudalism to democracy. We have actually, this, this thing is not new that they're trying to do. It's old. This is a refutalization of a, like, if you watch Downton Abbey, mm -hmm. you understand the idea there's a guy in a castle and then no one else owns land in the show. And anytime the people who don't own land get like a weird idea about how maybe they should own stuff too, they die in a car accident. Okay. And then, you know, and, and, every, and, and the rich people are nice, but it's, they're in charge mm -hmm. of how the help works. They're in charge of shaping the society through their kindness, through their generosity. Mm -hmm. And this is the Zuckerberg model. And now, uh, you know, it, it extends, he, he's trying to get rid of all the world's diseases, as mm -hmm. if public education is the hard enough problem. You know, and I just think, how remarkable. We have doctors. He may not be aware of them, but we have some. His mm -hmm. wife is one. Um, we have an entire public health infrastructure. We have the Centers for Disease Control. We, we have the NIH. But no, Mark is going to get rid of all the diseases, even though his own company is a plague. Mm -hmm. Okay. By any <laughs> okay, that was a stretch of the imagination. Um, so, why do you think, when as you were doing this book, where is the mentality for it from? Because we have a history also in this country. You had Andrew Carnegie or the Fords or these all foundations, which now seem rather pleasant, you know, in terms of what they did. Whether it was libraries or the Ford Foundation continues. All these, even you know, the Pulitzer Prizes was. The, the, the origin is not the greatest origin. Talk a little bit about this. Like, this is something we have, are used to in this country. It's where the very wealthy people give back. But there's an interesting, you're totally right, there's a, but there's an interesting arc to the story. So this really began 100 years ago where you started to have these fortunes that were kind of what we'd call billionaires today, not just mm -hmm. people who are rich, but really essentially when they started becoming interested in giving money away, the way historians define this in philanthropy is they started to have enough money to be able to do the kinds of things that governments do. Mm -hmm. right? That's one way to think of it. And that was really 100 years ago. It was not benevolent associations and these things. It was someone who could really privately govern. And Carnegie wrote this incredibly important thing called the Gospel of Wealth, which many of you may have studied in high school or college in which he laid out what has become the intellectual foundation for money-making and money-giving. And, and it was basically a truce. It basically said, part, the argument's in two parts. Part one, making money is super hard. It's a jungle out there. You gotta leave us alone. We gotta, we gotta pay people as little as possible. Maybe we can't pay our taxes as much as you'd like. It's a, just no judgment. 
Making money is hard. If we don't do all this stuff, someone's going to eat our, eat our lunch. You know this argument from, from everybody in the Valley who always thinks they're about to be eaten. And what was radical about Carnegie on the other side is he said, however, when we then make a bunch of money from being left alone in the jungle, that money actually doesn't belong to us, right? We are mere trustees of that wealth and have to spend it on the public good and do it within our lifetimes, you can't inherit. So he was a, ruthless, he was a, he was a justifier of the most ruthless capitalism. However, he also advocated for a pretty radical mode of giving. And, and like a lot of rich people today like really remember the first part of Carnegie, but like kind of forgotten the second part. Um, but he laid out this bargain that I think has ruled till today, where if they give back, that buys them immunity from questions about how they made the money, how they keep the money. We're talking about taxes. We're talking about wages. We're talking about what you lobby for in Washington. There has been this silent bargain that all of us have participated in, frankly, the media has participated in, that generosity entitles you to a little bit of a suspension of scrutiny. And what was really interesting 100 years ago when this was getting started was it took time for this immunity to develop. When Rockefeller proposed a foundation in 1909 to create kind of the first foundation of that kind, there was no legal structure for it, right? 501, whatever, all the stuff we have now didn't exist. So he was trying to figure out what's, he asked Congress. Congress said no. You can't create a structure to give your money away. Can you imagine that today? Why? Because they didn't want him exerting that much power of public life. He came back a year later, this is one of the most amazing documents I've ever read, with a counterproposal to Congress. I've heard you, I understand you're concerned about one private citizen governing privately, you're right. Here's a counterproposal for a new idea for a charter. And this should actually become a reclaimed heritage. He proposed in various ways, in great detail, a way that, to do a foundation where the public would have some say over it. Right. If the Congress or a subcommittee it created decided that this foundation was no longer doing better at giving away money privately than, say, Congress, it could just put the money into the Treasury. Right? It could dissolve it. It could create committees to help allocate the money so it wouldn't just be some private guy and his like, nieces and nephews and children allocating the money. That whole heritage of skepticism that, that, and, and people, even Theodore Roosevelt, saying no amount of generosity can excuse how the money was made, even Democrats don't talk like that anymore. Right. Everybody's for these people giving back. And basically what happened was that initial wave of skepticism gave way to those people spending a lot of money. And every institution in this country, one way or another, started to be a beneficiary of that money. Right. And lo and behold, you start bribing the society at large. People start to develop a very positive idea of you. And part of what I and there's several others who write in parallel with me have been trying to do is to say, you know, a lot of this philanthropy, a lot of this do-gooding impact investing is basically trickle-down economics with a cherry on top and a little bit of whipped cream. Right. What do you imagine they should do with their money then? I mean, first of all, right now, Mark and others in tech, for example, who have all the money, who have obscene amounts of money, actually, are in trouble for their businesses, how their businesses are operating, which, is, which will probably never impact what they're making, you know, how they're, what they're making. What do you imagine, so when they get that rich, they're like, we have to give away the money. How do you get to that first idea that Ford had, which is, would be the correct one, where you, where you don't give these people more power on the other side that we've already given them in the first well, place? Well, first of all, the question in that world that everybody loves to ask, 
and, and I think very rich people in general, is like, what can I do? What can I start? What new thing can I do? Right. And so the first thing I would say to them is, you know, to flip around John Kennedy, ask not what you can do for your country, ask what you've done to your country. Mm-hmm. These people love being future-oriented because that kind of prevents us from being past-oriented. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Right? So I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in Zuckerberg seizing and desisting from doing a bunch of things, and I'm happy to give him a list, and you have an even better list than me. I'm way more interested in that than I am in what prospective things he can do. I'm happy to let public schools, principals, and teachers go back to just running their own show. I think we'll be okay. Um, I would love him to actually stop abusing our privacy, uh, stop compromising our democracy, let government in to regulate what it needs to regulate, not lobby against that in Washington with that stooge who sat behind him. You know, I, I think the more important what a lot of these folks do is these modest acts of do-gooding, and then they lobby for stuff in Washington, just lobbying on its own, mm-hmm. that has a thousand-fold the impact of the good they do. I'll give you one example. So Pepsi and Coke, right? They all have playgrounds. They make the smaller cans now, so you've got to drink two to get diabetes. You know? um, <laughs> so that's great. And they run these ads. We're basically a water company mm-hmm. you know, with sugar in the water. Um, <laughs> but it was revealed during the Trump trade negotiations with the renegotiation of, of the trade deal with the Mexicans. That one of the things that, the, that I think these beverage companies and food, American food companies were pushing, and the Trump administration you know, took their request to the Mexicans, was to remove the Mexicans' right as a democracy to put nutrition labels on a bunch of products. Can you imagine that for a second? So yes. if the Mex- under this deal... If the Mexican government representing their people had wanted to put informative labeling on it, they wouldn't be able to because an American company had persuaded the American government to prevent the Mexican government from doing what its people wanted to do under a democracy, right? And then you wonder why people are angry in this age we're in. So I don't need Pepsi and Coca-Cola's playgrounds to help you know, one thousandth of one percent of the kids they have harmed lose a little weight. I need them to not do the things they're doing right now. And the real way to have them do that is to have government play a way more assertive role in public life and stop trusting you know, the foxes to be the hen keepers. Is there any of these efforts that you think work with Bill Gates, for example, what they're doing? Sure. So, so one of the easier cases is places where government is not functional. Mm-hmm. So where, where you're, when you're giving money to places, as he does, he also does a lot here, but when you're giving money to places where, frankly, government could never solve that problem, mm-hmm. right? I think it's much easier to justify. By the way, I still think there's a lot of questions around being paternalistic, being yeah. imperialistic, how you do it, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Centering human beings, you know, centering communities versus just dictating. All of that still applies. But the case for crowding out public capacity in places where there is no public capacity is stronger. Where you're redesigning common core here, you're, you're designing common core. Whether it's core, education or... You're jamming it down a bunch of state legislatures without a vote, right? And then people are getting angry. Um, I think there's a lot less of justification for that. And people often bring up Gates to me because Gates is not the Sacklers. I don't even think he's necessarily... Zuck. But I think even if you invent someone who made their money perfectly, didn't harm anybody, wasn't Darth Vader, even in that case, the question people often ask me is, so is there any problem with that, right? Let's imagine someone who really has not, Serena Williams just makes a lot of money and decides she wants to transform public Everybody schools. Everybody likes Serena Williams. Correct. 
Got it. Even if there's no problem in that case with how the money was made, there's no problem with any of that stuff. She hit the ball. That was it. Correct. Right. There's still a question of should any one person, however amazing, have that much say over public life? And the question it raises for me is, why do we actually bother, fuss so much about voting rights? Why is it so important that a relatively small number of people not get turned away at the polls, right? Why is it important that we fought against poll taxes and all this stuff? Why was it important to fight for women's suffrage? If we, if we create this entire system where the choices about our biggest shared problems are made by us, but then we create this other door to the nightclub of democracy where only people with a billion dollars can come in and they can just also sort of overrule so us on a bunch of things. So even if there was someone with, nobody should have this rule over public life, what would you do with their money? Just tax it and then... We should just tax it more heavily, mm-hmm. right? Uh, first of all. Um, you know, and, and there's pretty good evidence that places that, that tax more of it just have more dignity and decency. Um, people want to tell you that that's a mystery, and we don't really know, but we know. Um, many people in this room have probably been to those countries. It's just different there. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. I mean, I remember when I lived in England for a year, and England's pretty free market in the European spectrum, but less so than us. I, I lived in England. I got sick. Uh, I went to the doctor, and afterward I was like, so how do, we, how do we settle this out? You know, I don't know. And they were like, just go home. And not only was it free, I remember, like, that moment... There was an expressive, I felt that society was expressing itself to me. It was expressing its values in the transaction, in the absence of a transaction. There was moral meaning in the person saying to me, who didn't, wasn't a citizen, was not even really technically a resident, was a student there. They didn't even know any of that. They were just a person who looked like someone maybe they had colonized and from another country they had colonized. Um, it's always a safe bet there. Um, and they were just like, we got it. We yeah. got, and it's just like that's the like we got that. So it should be the government that should be deal, the government that you hire that should be doing this. And, and and to be clear, I'm just talking about our biggest shared problems. Right. I don't want my phone to be made by the government. I don't want my flights to be you know air, airplanes to be made by the government. I don't want these chairs to be made by the government. What we are really talking about is the commons, is the stuff, frankly, that the systems, the infrastructure, social, physical that we are powerless to do alone. But the commons has changed into a private thing. I think I just wrote about this last week, that the public square is not Twitter, for example, even though it's, or Facebook, but it's become that. That we've allowed, for example, political discourse, because it it infects everything. The commons is now privately owned more and more, whether it's an online commons or, you know, toll roads are a different... when, When you... I think what we don't sometimes realize is we've been on the receiving end of a 40-year war on the idea of government. Not just on government, on the idea mm-hmm. of government. And this is an ideology, the way any fundamental... It's a market fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. I call it capital supremacy, right? And like every other supremacy, it excludes and marginalizes every other thing that's not its reality. And so in this culture... Money was good, entrepreneurs are good, businesses are good, government is bad, public purpose bad, private gain good, and, and so on and so forth. This shaped everything. It shaped what people wanted to do when they were graduating from college. Also, as an element of technology, will fix it, yes. too. Because that, that's an overriding part of it. Is do you that, remember what Gates said? So many things. Which so one? many things. We have all these hierarchies in the physical world, but when tech comes in, tech doesn't care who you are, it's just going to eliminate 
those hierarchies from the physical world. I mean, what an extraordinarily naive thing to say from the standpoint of 2019 by a man who was brilliant and meant well by saying that, but I think was fully unable to understand if you take a historical view rather than a computer science view, most new tools submit to the existing power situation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, new tools don't change everything. Nothing changes everything. The, you only think something changes everything if you have a computer science degree and you dropped out two years early, right? That, the, these people need to all go back to school and like get a liberal arts degree. Well, you know degree. that. You know, I, you know, I think that. Um, so what, so if we're in this state where people do welcome, because state governments welcome this money when they bring it in, uh, and then when people complain, they get less attention for what they're doing. Taxing would be one way, just taking their money, just taking their money and have the government decide to do with it. How do you get rid of this idea that these people are better and smarter? Because I think that's one of the ways. We'll fix it for you. We'll, we know more about this and, this and that. And what's interesting to me on, among all these people is Jeff Bezos doesn't do a lot of philanthropy. In fact, he just started, which I thought was fascinating. And he, for, he resisted for a very long time. Um, and then I think felt pressure in some, must have felt pressure in some way to do that. And again, like, what was so striking about his announcement was that I, I, I think our... His was to do what it was. $2 billion to start, right. Right. a billion to a Montessori program where kids would be treated like customers at Amazon. That's his <laughs> quote, not mine. Um, I guess you can return your education within 14 <laughs> days or whatever. Um, and it's free. <laughs> and, and then, so that was creating his own thing. And then the other billion was um, homeless programs. That was supporting existing programs, I think, in and around Seattle. What was interesting about it is, I think our societal view of this stuff is, is maturing. So whereas when Gates made his announcement, people were just gaga, like, that's so nice, so nice. And even Zuck several years ago now, it was still fairly uncritical by my, by my standards. When the Bezos thing happened in September, I think it was, the day one story, to use his favorite expression, the day one story in the news media was, yeah, but you pay your taxes? Yeah, but don't you have workers peeing in bottles? Don't you have all these work campers that Jessica Bruder wrote about in Nomadland, such an important book about these essentially homeless people living live in caravans, traveling around the country, working seasonal, couple months here, couple months there at, at Amazon. Why are you fighting homelessness you know, by philanthropic moonlight while you're causing homelessness by operational daylight? Why don't you just not cause homelessness? Right. Right? Like, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm sure these people in, in the valley, you know, have teaching girls to code, you see a thousand girls to code. I mean, why don't you just not run your companies in a way that it's increased the likelihood of 160 million women in this country living under a misogynist? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think every woman I know would be willing to forego a coding class for free, but not live under a misogynist, right? right. right? It's so much better that these people just don't cause these problems right. that they then clean up 1% of with yeah. this like little wet wipe of philanthropy. Okay. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this with Anand Girdadas, the author of Winners Take All. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. 
If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Let's move to San Francisco and Mark Benioff and the, the, the tax. He was for a thing which is tax people more, that's all, and then the government. And the government didn't want the money. I just interviewed the mayor there. That was such a fascinating situation. Right. In this um, case, San Francisco, Mark Benioff was for a tax. He wanted to be taxed more. And other internet billionaires did not want to be taxed more. And they were fighting with each other. And then the mayor sided with the ones who didn't want to be taxed more. Because she, she felt it would be too much money suddenly for the city to administer well because right. they didn't have a plan. Right. What was so interesting about this was, and I've had interesting conversations with Mark about this, because he's, you know, he's done a lot of the philanthropy stuff, CSR stuff. And this was, I think, one of the first things where instead of doing that, where, where, with him giving the money and doing it, he, advocate, he, use, he uses money to advocate for public policy to raise taxes on people like him, mm-hmm. right? And I've talked to him since, and he's sort of amazed at the amount of money it generates every month. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? The government is really big. Even the government of San Francisco is just really big. And it, these things operate on a scale that even these rich guys actually can't imagine. And what's nice about that kind of tax is as in my British experience, it has an expressive value. It's not just about the money, right? It mat- this is a lost vocabulary, but it matters when a society does something versus a person doing it. It matters when you know, San Francisco has a plan to deal with homelessness versus a billionaire has a plan. We've lost the idea that that matters, but that's kind of the whole reason we built a democracy, right? That's, I mean, the Chinese make very good public policy, on a bunch of things. I would argue on, a, on certain areas, the quality of policymaking, given the interests of their people, is higher than ours. But I don't, I, neither I nor anybody in this country wants to switch to their system because the procedure matters. The fact that we are consulted the way we are in this country matters. And I think we're all willing to have a slightly worse outcome or a much worse outcome. If we all do. To have yeah. just procedures. All right, let's finish talking about the 2020 elections. A lot of these Democrats especially have been very close to the tech companies, and like Corey was very close to Mark on Newark and other things. What do you imagine will happen? Does government have the will to sort of stop taking advice from these people? I mean, do you remember, it's not just Cory Booker. Do you remember Obama sat and did a town hall with Mark Zuckerberg? Yes, the I way do. you and I are sitting and doing this yeah. now? Yeah, I mean... You can't imagine him doing that with some chemical CEO. Right. Right? Like, so many people participated in turning these people into sages um, and need to stop doing that, including the media. Now, I think the 2020 thing, I am actually, I mean, the, the numbers are getting a little ridiculous. I mean, I'm sure half this room is now going to announce it's running for the Democratic nomination. Right. Um, We're at it's, 23. It's becoming the... the Clown car. I think it's like 25 now after today. Oh, really? Like two more today. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a lot. Okay. Um, but I actually think this is going to be a phenomenal primary. 
And, the, and I, I am not so alarmed by the numbers. You know, the reason I think it's phenomenal is we are going to have a real, all-out, philosophical argument about so many things in this country. Because you have represented among this group very pro-tech, and people want to break up the tech companies. People who are very close to billionaires, and people who want there to be maybe no billionaires anymore, or much fewer, um, many fewer. You have dyed-in-the-wool capitalists, and then you have a democratic socialist, and then you have an Elizabeth Warren, someone whose policies are very close to democratic socialists, but says she's a capitalist in her bones. So we are having already, and it's going to get better, a real conversation of a kind that I don't think we've had, where a lot of the fundamental values of this country are tested on, on, this, on these questions of power and justice and, and capitalism, whether you can have a real democracy when wealth is as concentrated as it is. I think this is going to be a great, this is going to be the primary about everything. So when you think about wealth as concentrated as, because it really is, and it is concentrated among, when you look at the list of top 10 richest people, they are mostly tech people, yes. actually. How do you change that? How can it be changed without them just giving away the money, continuing, you know, family after family, you know, generation after generation? Wealth tax, capital gains tax, crack down heavily on evasion and avoidance. Right? People like to treat it like some huge mystery. It's so complicated. You know, I, one, of the, I, one of the people I interviewed for the book that, who's so brilliant is this political philosopher named Chiara Cordelli at the University of Chicago. And she's a political philosopher who studies wealth and philanthropy. She's writing a book called The Privatized State, which sort of gets at what you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And she said something that is so profoundly true. She said, these people, by which she meant sort of the tech barons, but just the the plutocratic class more generally, she said, these people have a concept of agency that makes no sense. When they want to work government power to get Glass-Steagall repealed, when they want to work government power to shoot down Obamacare, when they want to work government power to make sure Medicare for all doesn't happen, when they want to work government power to make sure a minimum wage increase doesn't happen, they're very capable of navigating the system. Mm-hmm. They're very, they have lobby, they're, they're very deft. Yes, they are. Suddenly you say, how do we fight inequality instead of increase it? How do we raise the minimum wage? How do we create a wealth tax? Suddenly it's like, you know, the system is just so hard to under, who even understands the system? Yeah. Yeah. I can just do my thing over here. I don't understand. I'm so, I'm just a small guy, very rich. And I can do, I can just do what I can do through my foundation. I can control it. I just, I don't under, I'm so little. I just don't understand that. They do that when you, when you ask them about how to fix the things they've done. First, when they, they spend most of their time explaining how smart they are. And then when you actually ask them to fix something, they're like, it's very hard, Kara. It's very hard. It's very hard. But somehow, when Google's say, spending $20 million dollars a year yeah. lobbying in Washington... Right, exactly. So what would the perfect rich person look like who gives money away? Because there, there's always going to be charity, and charity's yes. been an important part. Like, Great Do you question. mind them buying, making hospitals or, or things like that? Is that a bad thing? Or It's okay, but, but here, here, here's, what I, here's what I say. I, I, I think... I, mean, you don't like, I get moment, it that you don't like Pepsi making a jungle gym. I got that part. But no, I, I, I get it. What would be the good use of people who make enormous amounts question. of wealth? What would be the way we let them give their money to us besides Correct. taxes? So, look, I, I, to be clear, I think I want to live in an America in which there's fewer billionaires with fewer to give away. Um, but we're not there yet. We're not, we may not get there. So we got to work. We're going to get in, a trillionaire. Right. But go ahead. We do need to work in the premise that you just laid out for now. 
And I think when you live in an age of extreme inequality like this one, of hoarding, elite hoarding, elite monopolizing of the future itself, if you are a serious person who wants to give in better ways, the only acceptable kind of giving is traitor to your class giving. Right? FDR was a traitor to his class. FDR ran this government as a traitor to his class. Good for people, bad for his fellow rich people. I think the kind of philanthropy that feels right to me in this moment is FDR-style philanthropy, except philanthropy, not running a government, which is philanthropy that would actually break down, dismantle, help accelerate the end of a bad system instead of shore up a bad system. So Goldman Sachs' 10,000 women program, that's just giving back. It's not really giving anything up. It's not dismantling a bad system, right? It's actually trying to buy yourself a little bit of wiggle room to continue being Goldman Sachs. But Goldman Sachs saying, we're going to actually get out of the student loan activities that we're doing, which are actually just hurting and dooming millions of people, or we're going to stop lobbying against Glass-Steagall, or we're going to stop lobbying against this consumer financial protection, because actually it would be good for people, even though it would be bad for us. That would actually be giving up. And you could have philanthropists. I, I was at a, a, a room full of philanthropists this afternoon, and I, I asked them, how many of you in this room about this size, except they all worked for big foundations giving away lots of money. And I said, how many of you, your foundations, these are random foundations, how many of your foundations work on impact investing? Maybe half the room's hands went up. Three quarter, two quarter, uh, two-thirds of the room's hands went up. Like most foundations in that room right. are engaged in that. I said, great. How many of you are working on, how many of your foundations are working on a wealth tax? It's like one lonely guy in the middle is like, <laughs> right? So... It's very simple what I advocate. People in that room, more of them should be working on the wealth tax. More of them should be working on equalizing public fu school funding, winning a Supreme Court case so that it is no longer legal in this country to, to fund public schools according to how big mommy or daddy's house is. Mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things that would actually help dismantle a bad system and would actually not crowd government out, but crowd government in, uh -huh. um, where you'd use your giving to test things privately and then try to mainstream it into policy. Um, that heritage has been lost under this fantasy of billionaires who want to build these companies as little kings and then want to rule over public life as little kings, and who I think if they don't quite get on the right side of history are going to meet the fate of some of the more despised kings in, our, in, in history. All right. So, very last thing. Impact investing. That guy. Bill McGlashan. Yeah. Fantastic guy. Um, how many of you know the name Bill McGlashan? How many of you know the name Lori Laughlin or Felicity Huffman? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is the problem with America. Two actresses taking the fall for a bunch of corrupt men. Um, so, he, so here's what happened, right? We all know that we were all spoon-fed this story of two actresses ruined America. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of men have been doing this for a very long time with a lot less scrutiny, cheating on a much bigger scale than buying one college seat. So in this group of defendants, with the two actresses, was actually the most important person yes. caught up in that thing, Bill McGlashan, who was the... We have an oh, alert right. from Bill McGlashan right there. Um, who was the head of something called the RISE Fund, right? TPG, biggest private equity fund in the world. If bad is good, it is, it is the best. Um, and, and, he, and they created their normal, like, ruthless private equity fund, but they created this side fund, the RISE fund, that was about helping people, fighting poverty, injustice. Bono was literally involved in this one. I'm not just saying that. They were, like, 
yeah. brothers, co-founders of this Rise Fund. They both went to Davos in January. They're sitting in you know the obligatory parkas, even though it was probably like inside a studio, you know, wearing the parkas, like talking about fighting poverty through impact investing. And what was only revealed a few months after Davos is that this guy who has been out there, out there, the lead, the, this is a $2 billion impact investing fund. A lot of impact investing has been like half a million dollars or like $5 million. This, was a lot of this is $2 billion. This is real money claiming we can fight poverty through finance. And it turns out the dean of impact investing, Bill McGlashan, it is now revealed by the feds, was after trying to empower the poor through finance by day, was going home at night and making phone calls to make sure that a seat in college was reserved for his son through bribery so that none of the people that he was empowering through his impact investing fund, no matter how empowered they got, no matter if they went to some better for-profit school in some African village or whatever the hell he was doing, that none of those kids could at the end of the day compete with his kid for the seat that had been bought. And I think there's something so profoundly metaphorical because what it teaches us is when you have someone like Bill McGlash in a domain like impact investing trying to make the world a better place in ways that pay them a high return on investment, it is a clue. When you put those with the most to lose from real change in charge of change, you can expect some distortions. They're going to change change. And I think what I... I'm, I'm calling for is for us to simply take the changing of the world back from those who actually don't want change at all and have stolen the idea of it in order to defang it. All right. On that note, questions from the audience. I'm happy to also offer um, artistic criticism of all the we work. No, you may art. not. They're very nice to have us. You be nice. It's really radical in this you be uh, nice. conglomerate. You be nice. Yeah. Stop it. Um, I agree. Thanks a lot for coming. Too. Um, Kara, I think you'd make a great mayor of New York. Um, think about it. You got a crazy uh, one, though. No, thanks. Um, my question is about this sort of rise of the rest um, mentality. I don't know if like Steve Case is Steve fun. Case and mm-hmm. Mark Cuban. And what there was like this recent article about like, you know, spreading coding academy in Appalachia and like this sort of idea that the prosperity of tech can spread to to the rest of the country. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. And There's differences, just to be clear. Yeah. Steve is doing more of investing in companies across the country. He's not doing a lot with coding. He's not that involved. Because yeah. it's very clear coding is going commodity. So it's not going to be the savior of anybody in Appalachia. It's just not. Um, <laughs> coding is the new coal in Appalachia. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be. Yeah. But the, the idea but is to like get... premise, really. His idea was that right now, uh, 80% of... Venture funding now goes to three states, and most of it to uh, California, and most of it to S- Silicon Valley. And so he, they want to spread around the investing. Um, but what do you think of that, Anna? I mean, I think those initiatives are great at the margin, but the problem is my understanding of the problems in West Virginia, which is limited to what I read, are, you know, I think the lack of venture funding is an incredibly small part of the problem. Um, I, had, I have a feeling that if they like, you know, paid the teachers what the teachers wanted to be paid in those strikes and they had actually a decent education system, I think you might see some of that startup activity happening on its own. So a lot of this stuff ends up being like nicotine patches for massive systemic failures of governance. Um, and I just, I mean, you can try it, but I just think you're going to get a lot more Newarks and a lot more Columbusing, and I don't think it's going to change anything. Okay, next. 
Hi, I just want to ask you what you think about the Bedrock Foundation and what's happening down in Detroit. I was just there, and there's a resurgence. There's, I um, can't remember the name, but the guy who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers. Oh, what's his name? Yeah, Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert. So he's investing, changing the city, but there's still so much homeless, and there's still so much work to be done. There are a lot of factories out there. Shinola's out there doing watches and everything else. And they're saying that it's made in America, but it's really not. So I just kind of want to see what you think of the capitalist point of view with philanthropic. I mean, what's so interesting that I just saw this the other day, but the, you know, there was a story that you, you all probably, probably saw that um, TurboTax has been lying to people who could file for free. For free. And they've been like gaming the search results so that they don't know that and have to pay TurboTax something. You know, TurboTax is like a spin-off from the company that Dan Gilbert, you know, was involved in, in founding. And so this is sort of how it works. Like you you have these entities that generate a lot of money, and some of that money goes to trying to help Detroit. But frankly, I bet a lot of people in Detroit were also screwed by that practice and various other practices. You know, uh, Detroit, from what I hear, is also sort of becoming like Dan Gilbert's town, which to me feels like refutalization. I just think we worked really, really hard to leave the Middle Ages, where you had, like, towns where you had one lord and lady, and then everybody else was just there like seamless drivers, you know, back-projected 500 years. And we're... we're we're, re we're like willingly re-entering that world in so many ways. There's just so many, I was just in Michigan like a couple weeks ago, so many structural issues, racial segregation, water and flint, just structural issues in Michigan that some rich guy throwing coin is just not going to be part of solving. And then they had that CEO governor, I don't know if they still have that guy, Snyder, you know, like it was a private equity guy or something like that. Like w the, the people who caused this problem should be nowhere near the wheel of solving it. Okay, one more, go ahead. Hi, I'm a big time Kara Swisher fan. Hello there. And much like uh, another, another thing, I think that Kara Swisher should run for, I don't know, president, but I think maybe enforcer for Elizabeth Warren. So if anyone comes after. She's a smart lady. Yeah, and so I think. Too smart for the men. Okay. <laughs> Well, sometimes, uh, much like the, the throne, yeah. you know, the person who needs, the th who should be in power isn't the one who's actually <laughs> in power. Yeah. So the question, thank you, is there um, has many been, there's been a lot of amendments made to the Constitution in the past to address t gross uh, social inequities or things that right. need to be addressed. Uh, what, what do you think would be like three main topics that could be in that amendment? I mean, first of all, our country's so broken that we can't pass, like, spending resolutions. An amendment requiring three-quarters of the states and two-thirds votes, I mean, it's complicated. However, um, I actually think the issue of inequitable public school funding is, the, in some ways, the gravest unresolved constitutional violation of this country. I just, there's no because it's basically racial segregation ongoing through class. Right? And so a de facto Jim Crow is still on the books because Greenwich can fund Greenwich's schools and Bridgeport funds Bridgeport schools in Connecticut and everywhere. So 
I, and when I talk to people, not politicians, but regular people on the right in this country, they're actually as offended by that. That's not a particularly conservative value either. There's a little bit of the local control thing. But I think abolishing unequal public school funding um, would do more to advance justice in this country than maybe any other single thing. Right now, it is legal. I mean, we, you just have to get your head around the idea that there are places and there are districts in this country that spend $30,000 a year on public schools, and there are other districts, sometimes next door, that spend $5,000 a year on school. This is essentially picking some kids to condemn because their parents' house is smaller, and usually because they're more likely to be poor and black and whatever else. So to me, this feels like something that's as unconstitutional as various other things that we couldn't achieve through a court ruling and had to do through that process. So that's, that's what I would submit. So last question, very quick. Do you think the tide is turning on this? I do. I want to give a real shout out to someone who I think has been such an important catalyst for change and awakening in this country, which is Donald Trump. Um, okay. Because for 30 or 40 years, this ideology that I've been talking about, we've been talking about, has been pretty indomitable, right? Business people are smarter than everybody else. Success in some domain means you should have thoughts about all the domains. People who cause problems are the most qualified to fix them. Um, this has been in the water for a long time. It's the tech rhetoric, it's the banker's rhetoric. But no one has so quickly, efficiently, and flamboyantly discredited <laughs> the entire tau of philanthrocapitalism the way Donald Trump has in, in just two years. It is now inarguable that being a business person is no guarantee of intelligence. It is now inarguable that knowing one industry does not make you an expert even necessarily on that industry and certainly anything else. Um, it is now inarguable that in fact, being the guy who made ties in Mexico and China does not make you supremely qualified to bring jobs back from Mexico and China. That arsonists are not in fact the best firefighters. And so my hope, and I think we saw a lot of this in 2018 with all the improbable victories, all the people running for office, all the women who ran who didn't even necessarily win but are gonna be running next time and the next time, that people are actually waking up to the idea that we're not going to change the world through an app, right? We're not going to change the world through like management consulting firms or CSR or, or tech companies or whatever, that you get the kind of society you're willing to invest in democratically. Um, democracy is not a supermarket, right? You don't, I need milk, I'm going to pop in and grab a little milk. Um, it's a farm, right? You don't grow anything, you don't plant anything, you don't get anything. And I think that has been awakened. And I see a revival of civic life. I see people knowing the names of various bills, HR uh, 64, what, like there is an awakening happening that I don't think I've seen in my lifetime. And I think a taking back of just the very idea of self-government. And people with Donald Trump's level of IQ often have unintended legacies that exceed their intended legacies is the nice way to put it. Um, and I think his, unintended, his, his intended legacies are disastrous, don't, don't get me wrong, but I think his unintended legacy may be greater in the long run if we survive the intended legacies, that we woke up to the idea that we weren't gonna be saved by money, and that we were gonna save ourselves. He's so poor, all he has is money. 
All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Anand for coming on the show. And thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you share it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. Search for them on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Jill Pendergast and David Rosenberg. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.